Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risks and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. I'm working on my next book. So in this season, season four, I'm talking to game-changing leaders in and around the oil and gas industry to explore how companies can translate that decarbonization aspiration we've been talking about so much into action. Today's show, I have a real treat for you, Martha Hall Finley, who's Chief Climate Officer at Suncor. Martha has a really interesting background. She has a a law degree from York University, a BA in International Relationships, and an Institute of Corporate Directors designation from the University of Toronto. She was admitted to the bar in Ontario in 1988. Now, Martha has served as a member of Parliament representing Toronto and was previously the President and CEO at the Canada West Foundation, which is a think tank. All of this before joining the Suncor team in January of 2020. So I'm sure you're familiar with Suncor and you'll hear a little bit about them today, but they provide energy from operations, including oil production, oil sands development, and renewable fuel production. You can learn more about Martha in our show notes. Now here's my conversation with Martha Hall Finley. Well, Martha, welcome to the Energy Thinks podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, well, you know, I'm a big fan. So this is an honor. It's great to be here with you. Well, thank you. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is you have such an interesting background and such an unexpected um, background that leads you to your current role. How does a former Canadian parliament member of previously the president and CEO of a nonpartisan public policy think tank, how do you end up as the climate officer at an oil sands company? Well, you're not the first one to ask, (laughs) Um, including my children. There's actually a reason. There's a there's a, a theme for my whole life. I've been interested in public policy. I've been interested in what Canada does or doesn't do to you know enhance our economic and social prosperity. I mean, I just think this stuff's really really interesting. And frankly, we don't do nearly as well as I think a country that's blessed with our all of our resources, human and, and natural resources, can do. So you know that was a theme when I was in in public office. I I never found I was never partisan. And so I found some of the partisanship challenging in, in, in politics. Then with public policy, yeah, it was really, really fun, a really good team. And we were diving into some of these really important issues, including, for example, what do we do with energy and climate? And then when the opportunity came up with Suncor, Suncor is Canada's largest integrated energy company. We're fully integrated. We produce oil, but we upgrade, we refine, we we own the entire coast-to-coast Petro-Canada retail network. We implemented our electric highway, so you can actually drive across the entire country of Canada, which, as you know, in the United States, because we share the border, is really far, but you can do that in an EV, um, which is quite something. But those are, you know, we have offshore activities. We have activities in the UK and in Norway. So we're a pretty big company and we're pretty broad in what we do. The opportunity to join a company like Suncor, and and I will say I would not have joined any any company. Suncor has an incredible reputation in Indigenous reconciliation, you know, efforts for decades now in really working with communities. And now, now we just announced our second full equity partnership. And for me, it was an opportunity to actually be in the thick of getting things done. So in politics, yeah, but that's limited. In public policy, you end up being able to make recommendations, but it's really hard to do. 
we're in the process of doing. This is this is an incredible platform and it's an incredible opportunity. And we will talk about the Oil Sands Pathways to Net Zero Alliance. That's our baby. And we've been at that for a year and a half. I've been at Suncor for two now. What an awesome example of, of for me, actually being able to do something. So it's, 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 a, it, I know it doesn't seem consistent, but there is consistency and it's pretty exciting. Martha, I've, I have admired Suncor before you joined and its sustainability efforts. It, it really is quite an endorsement that this is the company that you decided to join with your background. Can you talk a little bit about how you prioritize and think about sustainability efforts within the company? You mentioned some great examples, and I, I'd love to know particularly how you think about uh, climate action. Well, I, I, I would say Suncor has, 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 for as long as it's existed, it's, it's unique. It's, re, it's purely Canadian. It's history is is unique. It has, I mean, for 20 years, Suncor has supported a carbon price, which most people who think of oil sands don't think of things like that. You know, even, even among the oil sands company, we've reduced our, our per barrel intensity of emissions by 30%. That's a lot. So whereas a while ago, there were real criticisms of oil sands oil as being the really dirty oil, we're on a par now with American produced oil. We're certainly cleaner than Venezuelan and, and, and Mexican heavy. So, you know, we, we're, we're making really big progress. We just recognize that, of course, we have to do more. But for Suncor, even at its purpose, and the people who are involved in it. This isn't just, oh, wow, we learned we should do this a couple of years ago. This has been decades of of attitude toward community and toward people and toward the environment, whether it comes to you know biodiversity reclamation. We own bison, who knew, right? Like, like it's incredible what this company does. In the, the last couple of years, so they've had a chief sustainability, Sungor's had a chief sustainability officer for quite a few years. I actually took that role two years ago when my predecessor retired you know, award-winning disclosures and, and, you know, our report on sustainability and our climate report have been, have been really, really well done and really thorough. Just recently, I took on the role, a new role of chief climate officer. That is another example of Suncor doubling down, or as we say, my, my, the person who's taken over as chief sustainability officer, and I'm the chief climate officer, we're, we're doubling up, uh, if you will, but it, but it is, 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 an example of just how seriously Suncor takes this, these issues. And at Suncor, both the chief sustainability officer and the chief climate officer are members of the executive leadership team. There are nine of us. That includes the CEO. And in every meeting, and we meet a lot, we are absolutely part of the key decision-making in terms of capital expenditure, in terms of ongoing strategy, in terms of what the company does in every aspect. So we're not, you know, hey, let's let's give somebody a title and, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, you know, that'll solve the issues. Absolutely not at Suncor. We are clearly a fundamental part of the direction of the company and the decision-making of the company. And indeed, uh, two years ago, we started and we embarked on a significant strategic refresh for the company. And some of the stuff takes a long time, as you know, with big, with big public companies. But I can tell you now that of the six key strategic objectives for Suncor, five of them have a sustainability and or climate component. So it's embedded in Suncor. I would not have joined the company if it hadn't been that 
kind of company. It's so interesting because you mentioned two things. Well, first you articulated the company has been on a sustainability path for 20 years. But what I also hear is this, this idea of the doubling down chief sustainability officer plus chief climate officer, five of six of your strategic pillars are around sustainability. So I imagine that the company is continually reinventing itself to meet these priorities. So I'm curious because um, our listeners in many cases work for oil and gas companies that are also reinventing themselves around these, these ideas of a decarbonizing energy future. What do you think are the qualities that leaders in oil and gas companies need to cultivate in themselves and their leadership team to be ready and to be nimble for this moment? Trust and performance. Absolutely. And when I say trust, it's trust in a whole variety of places, right? You can't lead unless the people your team trusts you. You can't effectively lead unless you trust your team. We're a public company. Any of your listeners who are involved with public companies know full well that we have huge balancing challenges in terms of what our shareholders require in terms of return and what the, the larger direction of sustainability and climate change are requiring. And I, and I will say, I mean, look, there's a ton of, of noise out there about the um, the importance of, of sustainability. There's a whole lot of noise about sustainable finance. There's a whole lot of noise after COP26 about the trillions of dollars that are available to invest in sustainable and green infrastructure and projects. But that money's not being spent. It's all well and good to say that the money's there. But fundamentally, finance needs a return. People who are putting money into projects need to see a return. And we know that as a public company all too well, because we're a public company that competes, we're in a global market. And so if our costs get too high, then our investors are going to go to other oil and gas. Well, we don't actually, Suncor, we don't produce produce gas, but we do, you know, we're very, very much, we buy a lot. We're very much involved. So when I say oil and gas, I'm talking about the larger industry. We were, it is a global industry. And uh, in many cases, certainly in oil, we're price takers. And so our only option to attract investment and, and, and retain our shareholders is to make sure that we're competitive in terms of costs. So we can't go out and start you know, building a whole lot of uh, renewable assets if they're not going to actually show a return that is commensurate with what we do in oil and gas. Suncor has been involved in wind for 20 years, but we are not a major wind producer. The return just doesn't actually meet the requirements of our shareholders. We've been very careful and we've done well with our wind, but listen, oil is, is our base uh, business. And so when, when we have shareholders, you have the larger headlines that say, you need to, you know, you need to be sustainable. You need to go green. We, we of course know that because it's the right thing to do, but we also have shareholders who are, who are behind us saying, you know, you go spend money on stuff that doesn't show a return, you know, well, we're, we're leaving. That actually is a really big factor in what, you know, we'll talk about this oil, oil sands pathways to net zero alliance, because it's not just an alliance among comp- competing companies, which in and of itself is, is extraordinary. It is also an alliance with the relevant governments. And we can talk about that uh, in a minute, but that's, it's a really interesting balancing act. And, you know, you can look at some of the global majors, you know, we'll try not to name names, but some have gone full on into we're disposing of assets here and we're, you know, 
know, going to invest in, in, in all renewables. And frankly, their shareholders are not exactly rewarding them. And so for Suncor, that's, you know, we've been watching very carefully and we have an obligation to shareholders. So, so we're very conscious of that. I will say, you know, I'll use it, Larry Fink from BlackRock as an example, two years. And I, and I think the COP26 discussions were interesting. I think there was a, a sense of, oh, you know, reality, like, we're not going to solve this with unicorns and rainbows and, and wonderful intentions, which are awesome. But reality is that, you know, the economics of actually getting affordable and accessible energy to three quarters of the developing, you know, the world that is still developing is a pretty big challenge. And we're in the thick of it. Um, I would look at Larry Fink and, and BlackRock. So Larry Fink's letter, famous letter that he did two years ago, kind of hinted at divestment from oil companies, didn't quite outright say it, but kind of you know, raised a, raised a lot of questions, frankly. And Larry Fink's letter of this year is really clear. Divesting from oil and gas. I what? How does? How did he say it? I'm paraphrasing. Divesting from oil and gas assets is like the ultimate in greenwashing. It doesn't. Mm. Right. Well, this, Martha, it's so interesting because this, in, in our work at Adam and Teen, this tension between sustainability expectations and the requirement to deliver energy the world requires and to do so profitably, uh, profitably is really interesting. And, and Larry Fink's most recent letter that you alluded to really talked about BlackRock distinguishing among oil and gas companies to find those that are preparing for the energy future, which puts a company like Suncor in a really great light. Because if we're not going to divest, which I agree we shouldn't be doing, we should be rewarding the companies performing in a sustainable way. Can you tell us an example of, of how the people or the leadership within the company Company are evolving in this transition. Some anecdote that tells that tells you, oh, this is happening. We're we're nimble. We're able to do this. Oh gosh, I couldn't find just one example. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you can it, you can give several if you want. <laughs> there's a there's a palpable excitement here now, and you know, listen, the oil and gas uh, industry in Canada, and this speaks a little bit to to the to the BlackRock view. No, no, we actually need to support those who are engaging in the transition. This is not going to happen tomorrow. The, the you know global oil demand, oil and gas is going to continue to rise through 2030. Let alone you know 2050. There's still going to be it. it the expectation is is demand will start will have peaked and and be diminishing, but there's still going to be a lot of demand. And so the the approach of supporting those who are producers into uh, getting their production to net zero, and also their collaboration with customers, their collaboration. So our investments in Lanza Tech and then Lanza Jet. So Lanza Jet's one of the sort of the main global opportunities right now for sustainable aviation fuel. That's our opportunity to be working with our customers. That's our opportunity to be not only reducing our own production to net zero, which is our, our plan, but also recognizing that a, a, an awful lot of emissions, like 70% of the emissions uh, from a barrel of oil come from when it's actually used. So how do we actually address that? Or how do we work with customers? How do we work geopolitically with some of those challenges? So, so you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot to do. There's a lot of excitement. I think our involvement in things like the Avatar program, you know, Kevin Krauser, he and his, his colleague, Brian Trudell, put, uh, started this a couple of, a few years ago. It's just extraordinary. It, it It's an opportunity to bring in them, usually, you know, young professionals, research, you know, folks from from uh, different uh, global energy players, and this is all with a, uh, a drive to innovate in the carbon tech. So it's not 
you know, necessarily clean tech. It's recognizing that carbon and CO2 are going to be around for a long time. How do we make sure that we can deal with those in a way that reduces global emissions? And it's really exciting. And it's a 12-week program. Suncor is a big participant. We basically say to a, but we, you know, I think there, we had 40 spots this year and 160, I think, applied. It gets really popular. So this is an example of that excitement building. And it is mostly, as I said, young professionals, not all, you know, we have lawyers and engineers and geophysicists and finance people all applying to participate in this avatar program where they they work in groups from uh, involving com- people from other companies together. It's really innovative. And then the top sort of five to 10 go on to the avatar accelerator as potential uh, ideas and innovations for, for future commercialization. But what that does, Tisha, is it gets are especially younger people, younger professionals, really excited about Suncor participating in helping to find solutions. So that is actually really exciting. And I have to tell you, around the executive team, I don't think any of us would call ourselves young professionals, but we watch members of our team get real, our different respective teams getting involved in this stuff. And it's pretty exciting. I just love that. And I will give a shout out to Kevin and Brian and Avatar, who we're a big fan of over here on the Energy Things podcast. We've had them on as guests. And um, they actually are responsible for introducing Martha and I at a gathering in Scotland. So thanks to them. And, And let me just keep building off this idea of how our emerging leaders within our companies are such an important part of, of creating this energy future. And I'm, I'm curious, Martha, about how, how the company is balancing these political pressures, which often are some of our emerging leaders are, are, are younger and they're more uh, liberal minded and more climate focused because your company's had some interesting developments working within Canada. Justin Trudeau has recently called for faster emissions cuts. And I'm curious how how that plays in. But also, you personally have been named a Canadian climate champion by the Canadian Law Initiative. And so I'm just curious, how do you balance these political pressures and how does Suncor engage on the political front or at least with these political um, movements? Well, I'll go back to your earlier question and my answer about trust and performance, trust and action. And we at Suncor certainly over the years, but this the the oil sands pathways to net zero alliance initiative, we went to the government, the federal government, a year and a half ago when we first started this work. And by the way, the CEOs of the company. So we are now six companies representing virtually all of the oil sands production, which is you know, no mean feat, I can tell you, because we're all competitors. And we represent a full 10% of Canada's emissions. Canada is a, not that big of a emitter generally, but certainly per capita, we're actually near the top of the charts, partly because we emit a lot of emissions in our industry and we export a lot. So as an exporting country, a lot of those emissions get attributed to, you know, the per capita uh, calculation. But anyway, we represent 10% of Canada's emissions and Canada's had a really hard time getting, you know, we've had lots of targets, but we've really had a hard time reducing emissions. Um, We went to the government a year ago and said, okay, oil and gas in Canada represents about 25% of our total emissions in this country. Oil sands alone, about 10%. We went to the government and said, look, we're the oil sands producers. We're a big part of your challenge. We also want to be a really big part of your solution. And we 
have a way we we believe we can do it at our foundational project is CCUS, but we also have fuel switching. We also have hydrogen. We have like a whole lot of different aspects to this, you know, let's face it, almost 30 year plan. Uh, CCUS is a, a really big part of the, the plan to 2030. And we said, so these these are these are the ways we we believe we can get there. We're not, we didn't announce this, you know, out of the, uh, we didn't pull something out of the hat. It took us a long time to come to this. We went through incredible detail to figure out, okay, what's possible? What are the financial aspects of this? What are the economics of carbon capture and storage, which frankly uh, doesn't generate revenue? Certainly not now. It's a lot different when you pull the stuff out of the, out of the ground and sell it globally, not a lot of revenue when you collect it and put it back in, right? Nobody's buying it. So the economics don't work. Again, I, I refer to being a public company and some of the pressures from shareholders. And so we were, we, we've been working with the federal government a lot for over a year now, almost a year and a half. And kudos to them, because frankly, politically, this stuff is not uh, easy for them. They have a lot of support among folks, for, frankly, who just say, let's just shut it all down. Let's keep it in the ground. But the more senior people in the government recognize, well, that doesn't actually, you know, that doesn't make sense, doesn't work economically. And if we can actually get to net zero in this industry, that's like a win-win all over the place. So we've been working really hard with them because we've made it very clear we can't do it alone. We can't do it financially alone. We obviously were, will be contributing an awful lot, but we need the federal government. We need the provincial government. But I think, Tisha, in going to them first, I mean, when Justin Trudeau came out and said, you know, we're going to have caps on emissions and, you know, we we kind of wink, wink and said, you're welcome, because we basically said last June, uh, almost a year ago, we came out very publicly saying, you know, oil sands are going to get to net zero by by 2050. So we kind of said, yeah, you're welcome. But it's politics. And I think it was Truman who said, you know, it's amazing what you can do, what you can accomplish if you don't need to take credit for it. So I don't really care if it's if it's the current federal government that is talking about caps on emissions when they already know we've been working really hard at, at making it uh, uh, getting to net zero by 2050. That's fantastic. You know, it just it's it's we're all in this together. We have had some really important discussions about timing. You know, there are lots of folks who want to get to net zero by 2030. And, and we're saying, look, it takes eight to 10 years to build anything in our industry. So that that's not going to happen other than the fact that CCUS, we already know the technology, so we don't have to invent things. Mm. We know what it is. The Norwegians are doing it. The Dutch, the in the UK, as you know, there are a number of projects in the United States. So we actually could uh, use carbon capture and storage. So that's our foundational project with significant, like, like a third of those emissions eliminated by 2030. So, you know, the, the government is going to have a harder time with some of the harder to abate industries outside of ours, for sure. But hey, we're, we've been the bad guy for, for a long time. It's pretty fun to be a part of, of the solution. We will be right back to the Energy Thinks podcast. But are your company's ESG efforts falling behind the sector? Find out by downloading ESG in 2022, Adam Mateen's latest white paper, to find out which moves ESG leaders in oil and gas are making and what's now standard across the industry. Download ESG in 2022 today at energythinks.com. And now back to the show. It's such an exciting story in so many ways, Martha, because um, when industry uh, competitors can come together, first of all, that's its own 
miraculous occurrence <laughs> that, that, can be, yes. that, that <laughs> takes overcoming numerous hurdles, but then to be proactive partners approaching government to say we want to be part of the solution is such a powerful reframing of climate and of the role of industry. And and I'm really I'm just really excited about this example. And I want to stay in touch with you and folks at the um, Net Zero Partnership to see what lessons we can learn about this reframing. But a really critical piece when we talk to our clients about this idea of being being proactive and maybe going to a state government with a solution, it is actually mission critical that the industry in the end not take credit, but let um, the wheels of politics do their their turning. But we have a really meaningful seat at the table. Um, any other lessons learned so far in that experience that that other companies looking to proactively engage in being part of a climate solution that, that come to mind? Uh, yes, a whole lot of lessons. And so would love to talk more <laughs> future with you, but that's, you know, that's also because personally it's fun to, to, to see you and, and be able to participate on this with you. I think the biggest single lesson of this is the being proactive because it speaks to generating trust. It speaks to action and performance. It's all, we, instead of waiting for somebody to tell you, you have to do this instead of waiting for somebody to regulate you, you know, potentially out of business, but to just, you know, it's the carrot and the stick, but it's actually, it's more than the carrot and the stick. It's Mm -hmm. actually taking the action before you need either the carrot or the stick. And, uh, you know, and, and when you, when we say we get it because climate is a really important challenge, we're not, I mean, you know, me personally, it's because I believe it, right. Mm -hmm. We're not, we're not saying those things. And I can tell you the people around my, my executive table all feel the same. We're doing it because we know this is a global challenge, not because somebody's telling us we need to right away. That helps immensely in developing the trust that you need and you back it up with performance. And we, you know, we have a couple of decades worth of performance where we can actually say, you know, it's hard for our industry, right? We're not a software company. We're not, a retail chain getting to net zero as an oil sands group of producers is going to be really hard but this is what we believe we we can this is how we believe we can do it so it it speaks to the trust it speaks to the reliance on performance and action and i think that's absolutely immense and over the long term you know in terms of credit people will recognize that this is something that this industry has has done and has uh, taken the lead on and we're really really proud of it it's not easy tisha it's going to be tough expensive. You know, we have a provincial government and a federal government that are not necessarily of the same view on, on certain politics. And, and some kind, sometimes we feel like, like we're a bit of a bridge there, but fundamentally people get it. And the fact that, that we have, have kind of brought them to that table is, um, is pretty terrific. So it's the being proactive lesson. It's the not waiting to have somebody tell you, not waiting for regulation, but being proactive is really, really valuable. That's really important to hear um, because these projects are so difficult to put, put together, these kind of collaborations, but they're so powerful. So I love having examples to look to. Let's talk about a different kind of partnership you talked about earlier, which was this full equity partnership. I assume this is a First Nations engagement. Can you talk a little bit about that and how Suncor is engaging with First Nations? Yes, happy to, proud to, as a matter of fact. And so you know, if you go back 20, 30 years and the oil sands are old, <laughs> these are, these are long-term assets. The, the physical location is in the areas where there are a number of First Nations, uh, First Nation communities and, and Métis communities. And there's no question at the beginning, 
uh, attitudes might have been a little different. Understandings were, were not as full, but there was a really great effort among the players to at least, you know, let's let work in terms of employment opportunities, for example. And so that was, that was good. That was, those were the steps and those moved into, you know, from, from employment opportunities to business opportunities, to, ha- to working with the communities, to develop the expertise and the capacity to provide goods and services. That has then involved in recent years into full equity partnerships um, that Suncor has with now all of the, the regional aid and total First Nations and Métis communities, our East Tank Farm, and then and then more recently, uh, the Astasy Project, which is another pipeline um, project. What's really been fascinating is watching how that progression has, as it's like a virtuous circle, right? The more employment there is, the more uh, resources there are going into the communities, the more opportunities there are, the more confidence there is in going to finishing high school and going to university, the more opportunity there are for those young people to come back with legal and business skills that then actually contribute even more to the opportunities for procurement services, uh, goods and services. Suncor last year spent, and we're particularly proud of this during COVID, we actually, our, our percentage and gross amount of procurement with Indigenous communities actually went up. A full 10% of Suncor's procurement goes to Indigenous communities and Indigenous-run uh, companies. That's astounding. We're a really big company. That's uh, in last year was close to a billion dollars. I know listeners, sometimes it's like billion, million, and people have a hard time with the numbers, but that's an awful lot of money and expertise and engagement that is absolutely, in our view, at the heart of reconciliation and, you know, as we call it, reconciliation. And, uh, and then when you get into these equity partnerships, they're partnerships. There, it, it, it's a it's a really extraordinary evolution. Um, it's something, frankly, Suncor has not bragged about nearly enough. When I arrived two years ago, even I had not been aware of the depth of this kind of activity. And so more and more, we get people from Canada, but also from from other parts of the world where there have been colonial challenges. Let's not kid ourselves. Um, asking Suncor for advice, so it's, that's pretty cool. That's really uh, that's a pretty uh, important aspect of what Suncor does that 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 I'm really proud of. And and the other oil sands too companies are have have been very much engaged. It's such a powerful front for a company to be evolving, to be engaging in such a an authentic way. And it's funny when you said Suncor has bragged enough about it. I I was thinking it's good because there is an initial skepticism about anything I think industry companies do. And you want to have that track record. And I love this idea of a billion dollars. I mean, that's really like a supply chain revolution to have that kind of investment and relationships and authentic partnerships. So let me just take that one step further into the internal company culture. Uh, We've been advising our our clients here, Adam and team, that Part of the way we're going to prepare our companies uh, for the transitions we have to make internally to meet these external expectations is by ensuring we have a very diverse staff and a very inclusive culture. Can you talk a little bit about about your own experience in Suncor and how you prioritize creating diverse, equitable, and inclusive culture 
to, to be ready for um, the challenges ahead with the best team possible? Well, a number of different ways. And, and I will say, so with this change in my role with a focus on climate, my colleague Arlene Strom has now taken over the role as the chief sustainability officer. She was the chief legal officer. She's continuing in that. She's keeping both. But, but, in, but you know, in her view, she's allowing me to have the climate, you know, really focus on the climate piece. So we've, we, it's a good allocation of, of effort. Um, and the good news is Arlene and I have been friends for many years, long before I arrived at Suncor. So we're really looking forward to working together. But the reason I mention Arlene is that she actually has a long history at Suncor, in particular with the inclusion and diversity efforts that have, as I said, been, you know, decades. Um, Arlene hasn't been with the company for decades, but she's been with the company for a long time. And she has been instrumental in really creating diversity and inclusion and awareness and engagement as being at the heart of what the company does and the, and, and the company's purpose. So she actually held the role of a vice president of sustainability before, and that also included all of our Indigenous relations, our community relations, which is now part of the larger chief sustainability office. Um, so she's back into a place where she's really passionate. But I she, uh, you know, I, I look to her as being absolutely instrumental in this. Now, I can speak from a female perspective, a 35, 34 or 35% of all of our vice presidents and up. So that's some are women in a mining company, in an oil sands company. <laughs> that is far better, frankly, than an awful lot of other industries. Martha, thank you. It is extraordinary uh, to hear about these examples from Suncor. I want to pivot and just get to know you a little bit in our last couple questions. Martha, can you talk about the core values that have carried through from your really interesting career as a politician, as a think tank leader, and now as a chief climate officer? What are the core values that you turn to um, and that you will be turning to as, um, as you meet the challenges ahead? Honesty absolutely has been something my mother drilled into me when I was a kid. <laughs> um, for better, or for worse, be honest, Martha. <laughs> but it has served me incredibly well. There are always times when you just, oh my, um, especially sometimes with three older brothers, but don't tell them I said that. But that as a rule is to me really, really important. And if you're honest about what you care about, you can't pretend to care about the environment. You can't pretend to care about, you know, inclusion and diversity. It it, it shows really quickly if you don't. And so if if you one, you have to care about these things, and I do. I mean, that's something that that another thing that my mother ingrained in me many, you know, right from the beginning is the importance of treating every individual person as an individual person. She used to talk a lot about that, and I and it really hit home. So, regardless of of race, religion, color, gender, orientation, any of those things, she was she was you know pretty ahead of her time. Frankly, I mean, she was born in the twenties, but those were important lessons, and so I. T- I've taken those through everything that I've done. I care deeply about about the sustainability of our environment, but I also care deeply about the sustainability of our our way of life, right? And the importance of economics. And I shouldn't say but, it's an and. I feel really strongly, I always have, about the importance of the well-being of, of as many people as as you know we we can provide for, right? Mm. So that that's a bit of my own sort of liberal background. I mean, small, small L, uh, philosophical liberal background. And, 
And I really feel that in this industry, it's the same thing. We're not going to get listened to. When I say we haven't bragged enough about, you know, what we've done in terms of in Indigenous relations, for example. And, and don't get me wrong. Like, the, you'll have Indigenous listeners who will say, yeah, yeah, there's still lots of work to do. Of course there mm-hmm. is. But I think progress is worth is worth celebrating, even if it's not complete. But you can't do that if people don't trust what you're saying. You can't do that if people don't trust that you actually mean it. You know, Prime Minister Trudeau could not have engaged with us if he didn't trust the individuals involved in Pathways to actually be coming to the table seriously and honestly. And we were. And it didn't take long for that to become really clear. There is greenwashing out there. There are lots of companies who are, you know, it's it, the divestment thing is classic, right? Well, I, I'm good because I'm divesting some some high emitting uh, assets. Well, you don't get to claim any credit for that because you just pass those high emitting assets onto somebody else, right? That's not what we are trying to do here. We are trying to solve this, the, the challenge of climate change in the context of all of the other aspects of sustainability, environment, social governance. Um, It's a lot easier for us in Canada where, you know, we are a democratic country, a country of rule of law, uh, human rights, etc. But but I, you know, I sometimes turn that on its head and say, well, then that's all the more reason for us as Canadians to be leading. Right. Like to, right. To, to show by example, we can do this. So I do I do think this is really important. I mean, I I, I sometimes have to to say to people, look, I I, I was, a, I guess, a pioneer in, in solar power. I, I've had I've installed my first solar power uh, system uh, probably close to 25 years ago, and it's now significantly expanded. I'm, I'm a huge fan. Like I struggle with why doesn't every roof have solar panels on? But when you say that, that, you know, going back 20, 20 to 25 years, it does help. It does help establish that credibility, that desire to look for options and solutions. And and I just, you know, this is a recurring theme in this conversation. Trust Mm -hmm. and performance are absolutely critical. I love that honesty as a value that you turn to because it is the antithesis of what fuels greenwashing. And humans have an extraordinary ability to sniff out lack of sincerity. So you do have to show up at these conversations being prepared to tell it like it is even when it's difficult. So I love that you turned to that. Final question for you, Martha. What are you looking forward to in, in the days ahead? You have this amazing opportunity to be a part of the energy transition very, very front row seat or maybe driver's seat. Um, What are you looking forward to? Well, in the immediate term, this pathways, oil sands pathways to net zero alliance is extraordinary. It is unprecedented. It's unprecedented in its collaboration among competing companies. You know, we, we, we've we've done this a bit before with our, our oil sands innovation alliance, or COSIA, but this is just a step change and really excited about that. Really excited about um, in the next few months, confirming what that looks like in terms of collaboration with both the federal and Alberta governments. We have budgets in each one coming up soon. And that's when we'll really know that that we're moving ahead. So really looking forward to that and, and very confident that that will happen because then, because that'll be kind of proof that, oh man, all the work we've been at, we've been doing for the last year and a half, it's actually happening. We're pulling this off. That will be fantastic. But then it will be all the rest. It will it will set the stage for all the rest of the things that, that we can do. And I and I will say, and I, you know, I know this this whole conversation is really focused on oil and gas, but there have been increasing discussions about 
the pathways model. Like, mm. this, is, this is weird, right? It's, I shouldn't say weird, but it's a little new. It's a little uncertain. People are going, well, wait a minute, here are competitors, right? Yes, we have made sure with all of our competition lawyers, all of our antitrust lawyers or um, for, for, for you folks in the, in the States. Um, this is okay. We can do this. And it's, act, and it's really important. The more I'm looking at some of the challenges that we are facing globally in terms of climate change, the more I think we need to stop looking to governments for the answer. And I know this was a big part of the talk in, in, in at COP26, right? Business needs to be involved. You know, finance needs to be involved. Yes, but it's a lot more than writing checks. It is pathways getting down into the the deep and dirty of what does this look like? What, you know, where would we put this, this pipe? Where would we do the sequestration? What are the capture sites that are, are the most likely to be most efficient at the beginning because they have the uh, purer streams of CO2, all of the technical stuff, all of the economic analysis, it's business going to government. Hey, this is what, what we think the solution is because too often I find people go to government here. Let's, and this was a challenge for us when I was in the public policy world, it was uh, here. These are recommendations to government. And I'm actually seeing pathways now as an opportunity to be a bit of a a template or a model as a recommendation to business, Mm. not about just writing checks. It's how can we collaborate to get stuff done? We saw it with COVID. We saw companies certainly in Canada of, of, from all different sectors, at rapid testing with the Creative Destruction Lab at U of T as an example. We all got together and, you know, Suncor and Air Canada and Shoppers Drug Mart and a bunch of different companies and saying, okay, you test this one, we'll test this one, you test this one, and then let's let's all, you know, coordinate to find out what are the ones that are working? How does this, like, it was an amazing collaboration geared at getting something done. So I do think my my first my first looking forward to is getting pathways off the ground and 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 that will be in the next couple months with government uh, conf- confirmation of government collaboration with what we're doing. And then it's actually how can we actually m- expand this approach to being economy driven, business driven because you know people will complain about big bad corporations, but actually Corporations are led by people and the corporations that are led by people who care can be incredibly effective. Mm. Martha, that gives us all something to look forward to, not just the pathways to net zero um, and, and seeing what comes of that, but this idea of collaborating first across companies and then across industries to address uh, the challenges of reaching net zero. Martha Hall Finley, thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. Oh, Tisha, as I said right at the beginning, you know, I'm a fan. So what an honor to have been asked to join you. And congratulations on this. It's uh, it's such great work. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Martha for taking the time to share her insights with us. Today's game-changing insight for me was really this idea of how mission critical it is for companies to be proactive and engaging with governments around decarbonization. The default is really that we are the bad guy, the emissions to be squeezed. Well, we can transform that dynamic by engaging in a proactive way to be a part of the solution with governments. I love that we got to talk about that. 
and there's a real initiative underway that we're going to get to follow. I'd like to know what you thought about today's episode. So please take a moment to rate and review us and you can check out more about this podcast and our work at adamantine at energythinks.com. I want to thank Adon Rubio, Lindsay Slaughter, and Michael Tanner for doing all the work that makes the Energy Thinks podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.